a number of years ago, I was interviewing candidates for baptism, and I did kind of a, a cheeky thing. I had, you know, as a pastor, I believed in visiting in people's homes. Amen. And, uh, and, you know, it's sad when pastors don't visit. But I believed very much in visiting in, in people's homes. And, you know, I'd been in the deacon's home a number of times, and I saw he had these lovely big armchairs. And I went to him on Friday and said, could you bring your chairs with you to church tomorrow? And he did. And we put them up, and some people thought it was sacrilege. We actually moved the pulpit, and we had a chair there and a chair there, and everyone who was being baptized that day sat in those chairs. And I asked them questions like this. Why in the world do you want to become a Seventh-day Adventist? What is that about? Everybody in the church that day was absolutely blown away by the testimony of a young woman who, with her husband, was going to be baptized that day. Um, she made this comment. She said, at first I would bring my children to Sabbath school, drop them off, and then come back at the end of Sabbath school to pick them up. I wanted nothing to do with the church, but I believed that my children needed a Christian education. But Sabbath after Sabbath, as I would walk through the door, and she called him Uncle Peter, she said, Sabbath after Sabbath, as I would walk through the door, Uncle Peter would smile at me and shake my hand. He wouldn't say much more than that to me. But by the time I had done that for a couple of months, I said to myself, that man has something that I need. Amen. He has something that I need. Um, I knew that her statement was true. Uh, this brother who didn't give Bible studies, who didn't even pray publicly, who never got up and called for the offering, had an attitude. It was an attitude for Jesus. And he was grateful to God for the way in which God had blessed him and cared for him. It was his minister to, ministry to stand at the door on Sabbath morning and greet people to the church. This woman had her life changed by Uncle Peter. And I will never forget that man getting up and mopping his eyes as he walked out of the sanctuary this morning. That, that morning, he couldn't take it anymore. But you see, for Christians living in the final days of Earth's history, it ought to be like this. Wherever we go, no matter what we are doing, it ought to be that obvious. It ought to be said by everyone who sees us, your testimony is showing. I believe that the time has come for Seventh-day Adventists, and that includes everyone in this room today, and if, if you're not, we'll invite you to do that later. But it is time for us to intensify our beliefs. And at the very center, at the core of Seventh-day Adventism is the need to represent God in everything we do. We must become more intentional about our faith and our beliefs. And I want to talk to you for a few moments, and I don't know what time we're really supposed to start, but when they start taking out the guns, I'm running. <laughs> I want to use this passage, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Ah, now they've got a timer. I have 29 minutes and 31 seconds. <laughs> Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing. 
but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ. You see, the fact is this, that most people who become Seventh-day Adventists and most people who are leaving the Seventh-day Adventist church do so because of relationships. What do people see in you and me when they watch us? Is our silent life testimony so powerful and compelling that those watching us would make lifetime commitments to Christ because of, they, uh, because of what they see in us? You see, we are preoccupied in the North American division with the idea of reaching our churches, our communities, our homes, our schools, and our business places with Jesus Christ. And this is a wonderful thing. It's what we've been called to do. However, if you and I do not personally demonstrate our connection with Jesus, then all other systems will fail. And I believe that when we start to talk about the question of why are we losing such a high percentage of our young adults, it comes back more than we would like to. It correlates with the idea that men and women of a younger age can see right through us. I'm going to share something very powerful with you this morning. A key to successful witnessing. It comes from an inspired writer by the name of Ellen. And this is how it goes. It's from Christ Object Lessons, pages 220, uh, 299 and 300. Listen to what she says here. We are to show the world and all the heavenly intelligences that we appreciate the wonderful love of God for fallen humanity, and that we are expecting larger and yet larger blessings from his infinite fullness. And then she says, far more than we do, we need to speak of the precious chapters of our experiences. And then she gives us, she starts giving us some keys. And if you've read this statement before, you know what I'm about to say. She says, these exercises do three things. That is, when we are praising God, when we are telling people that we are still expecting more from what he is doing, they do three things. Number one, they drive back the power of Satan. Number two, they expel the spirit of murmuring and complaint, and the tempter loses ground. And number three, they cultivate those attributes of character which will fit the dwellers on earth for the heavenly mansions. Then she goes on, and here's the real kicker of this statement. The most powerful thing at, comes at the end of the statement. She says, such an, a testimony will have an influence on others then no more effective means can be employed for winning souls to Christ. Go figure. Go figure. I want to explore this idea with you. How do I become like that? How may I develop such a compelling life statement through Jesus that men and women will see Jesus in me? How do we go about making this happen? The Bible makes a very definitive statement, and that is being thankful to God and praising Him come as a result of faith. Lasting happiness comes when, we, when our trust is placed in Him, when our lives are God-centered. The world today will have you focus your attention on yourself, on your needs, 
on your desires, on your aspirations, etc., etc., etc. And yet true happiness comes when we place our trust in God and become God-centered. Listen again to what Paul says. Do not worry about anything, but pray and ask God for everything you need, always giving thanks. And God's peace, which is so great we cannot understand it, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Two thoughts jump out at me when I look at this passage. Number one, we have the privilege of being happy and grateful because we are children of a gracious and wonderful, a generous Heavenly Father. We know that He takes care of us, even though we cannot always see it as He does. Uh, Secondly, as we come to know and understand this about God, He will give us that level of peace of mind that will almost be impossible for people to miss. Remember, these exercises drive back the power of Satan, expel the spirit of murmuring and complaint, and the tempter loses ground, and they cultivate those attributes of character which will fit the dwellers on earth for the mansions or for the heavenly mansions. This is what Paul was attempting to say in Philippians chapter 4, and this is what he's trying to say to you and me. This is God's plan that we will trust him enough so that it will change our lives. And so that our lives will continue to change. What we are dealing with in this passage is successful, transcendent Christian living within the context of daily life. It's not just apple pie by and by in the sky or some phony framework of, you know, get rich quick uh, quick, or get healthy quick or whatever. This is what God wants for all of us. So again, how do I find that experience? And how do I come to that understanding? I want to suggest three things this morning that I believe in the next 23 minutes I can get through. How do I come to experience God in that way? Well, firstly, I want to suggest that the belief that will bring us a spirit of thanksgiving is the knowledge that God only desires good for us. That the love of God only desires good for us. Now, that isn't always easy to see. I walked into his office. He was my counterpart in those days in Rwanda. And I was very interested when I saw the title, Dealing with Genocide. But I walked into his office. His name was Ramon Regalienga. He was the president of the Rwanda Union during the genocide. One weekend in the early part of 1994, Amon Regalienga left his house in order to go and preach in some neighboring churches. He did not come back to his home for 120 days. And when he got back to his home, he discovered that his wife, three children, and nine grandchildren had been slaughtered in the genocide. And I walked into his office asking the question, may I talk to you about your experience? I recognize that this is holy ground for you. And I would take my shoes off if it would be significant. As a matter of fact, if you choose not to talk to me about this, I would be just fine and we'll talk about other things. But if you're willing, can you share? That man looked at me in the face. The first thing he said to me was this. God has been good to me right from the very beginning. 
He said, for two weeks, I could not speak. But then God gave me the precious truth that he had forgiven me and my sins, so I must forgive other people. Now let me say this to you plainly, folks. That isn't natural. That is not natural. The natural way would be, I'll find out where they live and I'll take care of business. And even as Christians, you know, we, we make the statement, and I use it myself sometimes, I hope the Spirit gets to me before I get to you. It is not natural for someone to lose their wife, three children, nine grandchildren, and say, I am praying. The final statement in that portion of our discussion that day was this, I know the people who killed my family. They don't live too far from here. I see them from time to time, but I pray for them every day. That is not natural, folks. That is a gift of the Spirit of God. The love of God only desires good for us. I don't understand how you can work through that kind of pain and still make that statement, but that's what he said. King David in Psalm 100 makes this statement. He says, Shout to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with joy. Come before him with singing. Know that the Lord is God. He made us and we belong to him. We are his people, the sheep he tends. Come into his city with songs of thanksgiving and into his courtyards with songs of praise. Thank him and praise his name. And why does David say all of this? It winds up in verse 5 where he says, The Lord is good, his love is forever, and his loyalty goes on and on. I walked into her room in the hospital. This lady had just had the nightmare that women dread to even think about. She had just had radical mastectomy. And as a pastor, I also believed that you'd never missed a hospital visit. And that you never let anybody sleep unless they were in a chronic, chronic situation. So I would always go in and just touch the people on the shoulder. And I touched her on the shoulder. And you know, I say to people, it's good for pastors to visit in hospitals and homes. And part of the reason is selfish, because I was always blessed by it. She looked up into my eyes when I touched her on the shoulder, said the same thing as Amona Rogelienga. Pastor, God has been so good to me. The second thing she said didn't really do much for me. She said, do you want to see what they did to me? And she pulled off the sheets, and I was halfway down the hall. <laughs> what makes a person who has faced those kinds of situation, situations say what they say? It is because they have come to understand. They have come to know and fully comprehend that the love of God always allows those things to come which are for our very best. Even when they are negative, God participates in our lives. You see, you cannot escape this. You may deny it, but you can't escape it. Uh, he was in a potluck or at a potluck, and I was sitting right next to him. 
And I was, as I was sitting there, the pastor came by and said, Robert, why don't you tell Pastor Jackson your life story? <laughs> and he was kind of embarrassed. This gentle old man in his early 70s, he looked at me and said, would you like to know my story? I said, I'd love to. And he started off by saying, I was sentenced to life in prison because I murdered a judge. When he was 16 years of age, he had robbed a convenience store, had been sent, sentenced to jail, and in prison made a vow that he would go back and find the judge who sentenced him and murder him. And he did. He murdered him, took his wife and daughter and brought them all the way to Northern California where he was finally apprehended and then taken back to Canada where he was eventually sentenced to life in prison. Then on top of that, while in prison, he murdered another man. So like he was never going out, he was never going anywhere until he rotted in prison. That was the penal system's response. But then enter the picture, a crazy Seventh-day Adventist layperson who made a decision that he would tell, tell Robert one thing. That is, he would tell Robert that he loved him. He would go into the prison when he was given permission, and he had, he, he had visiting privilege. He'd go into the prison, and he would visit people. But when he'd go to Robert, Robert told me this. He said, I would conjure up every foul, religiously-oriented curse word that I could think of, and when he would come, I would give them all to him in about three sentences. But all that man would say to me is, Robert, I love you. Now, that's a real complicated, there'll be a seminar on that at about 2 o'clock this afternoon, how to say, I love you, you know, and you understand that this man was just operating under the pressure, the guidance, the authority of the Holy Spirit to go and tell somebody you loved him. You don't need a class to do that, and I'm not demeaning classes, I'm certainly not demeaning education. But that's what happened. Robert was in despair. He finally made a decision that he would commit suicide, and his preferred method of suicide was this. He took his toothbrush and scraped it against the concrete wall in his cell until it was as sharp as any knife. Then he was going to do this. When they came to feed him his breakfast because he was in solitary confinement, as they opened the window, he was going to grab the person by the throat and then slit his throat. And he said, you know, there was always somebody in the gang walk behind them with a gun. And I knew they'd blow me away and then I'd be dead and it'd be over with. That was where he had come to. The night prior to his plan taking place, Robert decided to clean up his cell. Look at everything he owned in a little box. And there he found a Bible. It isn't God good. Yes. Think about how good and gracious God is. Because he said, Pastor, you will never believe, but I opened that Bible just to look at it before I was going to throw it against the wall. And there was John 3.16. He said, I started to weep when I thought about that. I started to cry, and I could not control my crying. I took my pillow, and I wrapped it around my face so nobody could hear me crying. But I cried all that night. But by the time that morning came, I had given my life to Jesus, and I was his child. 
You can run. You can hide. But the reality is the love of God reaches out and God's intentions for you and me and for a world in need are only positive. They are only positive. You see, this is a message we need to understand in the church. God does not abandon and reject men and women because they have been damaged physically, spiritually, and emotionally. He does not reject them even when the damage has been self-inflicted. I had an old Pentecostal friend. I mean, he was like 112 years of age when I was... <laughs> he was a Pentecostal pastor. He was an old, old man. But you know, he still served. And I got to meet him, and he was a godly person. He told me this little story. You may have heard it. He said, you know, my, when I first was married to my wife, um, we used to sit. She would sit right up next to me. And I loved it. And a few years ago, she said to me as she was sitting on the other side of the seat, she said to me, why don't we sit close together anymore like we used to? And he said, I looked at her and said, well, I haven't moved. You see, and God hasn't moved. And God's attitude hasn't changed. Secondly, the wisdom of God that knows best. Not only is God, are God's intentions right, but his wisdom knows best. Jeremiah 29, verses 11 through 14, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. I love to think of the story of Abraham. You know, to me, Abraham is an amazing guy, right? He is known as the father of the faithful. And when people push that story with me too hard, I always say to them, well, I never sold my wife twice to try to save my skin. You don't think that's funny. I think it's hilarious. He's the father of the faithful. He tried to save his own skin twice by giving his wife away. I mean, I've been married for 44 years, but if I had tried to do that in the first few years, I'll tell you who would have been given away. <laughs> Think of the impressions of how people must have thought about Abraham as he's leaving his homeland and heading down the road. This guy doesn't know what he's doing. This guy has no clue where he's going. He is giving up everything that he has here because he says he's hearing the voice of God. Let me tell you, friends, I believe that prior to the return of Jesus, the stories that we heard here this morning and others like them are going to be repeated over and over and over again in greater intensity. She was in Hamilton, Ontario, and she was sleeping when she got an impression, go to Sacramento. She woke up in the morning, went to her father, who was not a practicing Christian, and said to him, Dad, I think God told me to go to Sacramento. And the father said, why would he do that? She said, I don't know. Well, what for? I don't know. You're sure it's God? Yes, I'm sure it was God speaking to me. Well, then you better buy a ticket and go to Sacramento. Amen. And she did. She bought a plane ticket from Hamilton, Ontario. Anybody even heard of Hamilton, Ontario before? A few? Yeah, that's good. Three? That's wonderful. 
Y'all ought to go visit North a little more often. But anyway, she left Hamilton and she flew to Sacramento. She didn't know why she was going. But when she got to Sacramento, again, information came to her. Go and see a lady that you were studying the Bible with earlier when you were here as a student. She said, but Lord, I don't remember the lady's name and I don't remember where she lived. But she rented a car and she left the airport and she's driving around Sacramento looking for someone she is not acquainted with. I mean, other than she studied the Bible with her. And finally, in desperation, she decided to pull off the road into a garage station and a car pulled right in behind her. And she said, you know, she was a little, you know, this is not a good thing. It was a young man. He gets out of the car. He comes forward. And just as he's getting out of his car, the name of the woman comes into her head. He comes forward and he says, you're lost, aren't you? And her, you know, she's rolled the window down that far. <laughs> you're lost, aren't you? And she said, you're a very uh, observant person. Well, I saw you at the last stoplight, he said, and you were looking like you were lost. You were looking everywhere, trying to figure something out. Is there any way I can help you? And she said, well, I'm looking for such and such a person. And she gave the name. And she tells me the story. He just stepped back from the car. And then he said to her, that lady is my grandmother. I can show you where she lives. So he leads her to grandma's house. And when they go in and sit down, grandma is dying. And grandma tells her this story. She said, I have been pleading with God recently that he would bring someone to study with my grandson because he needs the Lord. I want to tell you folks, the wisdom of God knows best, even when we don't see, even when we don't understand. The Bible makes it plain that God will never bring things into our lives that won't ultimately work for our good. He doesn't understand that we will understand as he does. He does not guarantee that every individual circumstances will permit him or her to react in a specified way to pain or suffering or disappointment or leading. He does, however, offer you and me the kind of evidence which will permit us to trust in his knowledge and understanding of things, even during times of confusion. It's still a difficult task, immensely difficult. Life isn't all just a bed of roses, but the Bible statement is this from Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know that in everything, God works for the good of those who love him. The Bible doesn't say in just a few things. It says all things or everything. Uh, they are the people he called because that was his plan. God knew them before he made the world and he decided that they would be like his son so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. God permits these circumstances to come into your life and into mine to uh, enable us to gain strength and faith in him. God never leads, this is Desire of Ages, page 224, God never leads his children otherwise then they would choose to be led if they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of purpose which they are fulfilling as co-workers together with him.
God doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Paul, Romans 11, 33-36. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. I dream, I wish so often that I could understand everything in life, but I can't. And neither can you. But I can understand the fact that the wisdom of God knows best. Thirdly, the power of God, which can bring about the fulfillment of our needs and our requests. We may offer a rich life testimony. We can be thankful because God comes to all of us and all of us at one time or the other has experienced his power and his grace in a remarkable way. I had a conference president once who became very, very frightened about the number of baptisms in the conference. He got up in front of us and he demanded, and he was a wonderful man, don't misunderstand me, he really was a wonderful man, and he said to, me, said to all of us, I want you to write down on a piece of paper how many baptisms you're going to have this year because I'm worried that you're not worried about the souls of the men and women in your districts, and I wrote on mine, two million. And I signed my name to it and handed it in. And he called me, Brother Romero. And he said, are you mocking me? And I responded to him by saying, are you doubting the power of the Holy Spirit? We did reason our way through that. But you know, I had been very burdened and very worried about my children's education. And we didn't have enough money. My wife at one point actually hired on to go cut dying trees in the mountains with loggers so we could have money to send our kids to school. I was worried about that. At the end of the little interchange with the pastor, with the president, he said, by the way, someone has anonymously donated $7,000 to your children's education. We don't always understand the power of God. But God knows our needs. He knows our wants. He knows what is required of us and what we can do under his authority. Now let me conclude with this. In all that we do, we need to establish ourselves on the true foundation, on the recognition of the three things we've talked about. I built a house once. It's the only time I ever built a house. That may tell you something. But I set up actually a prefabricated home. I had had, I did a very wise thing, and that is that I hired a contractor to put in the foundation. It was just a crawl space, about four feet high. I didn't want a basement. We were across the street from a lake, and I didn't want to be flooded, so we had a crawl space. But he had carefully put the foundation in, and I came along and put in the subfloor, and I was putting up the walls, when one day, the building inspector arrived. And you know that it's not a good thing 
when a building inspector gets out of his car and his arms are like this. Because that's what they were like. And as soon as he could breathe, he opened his mouth and he said, you have built your house on the wrong lot. A guy across the street, by the way, had put a swimming pool in what he thought was his lot. And when the guy who had been working way in the northern part of Canada arrived on the scene, he went to that man and said, I have never received a welcoming gift like this. Thank you so much for the swimming pool. And there was nothing the man could do legally. And the new owner said, by the way, I'm going to build a fence around it, but I'm going to have a gate because you've been so kind. You can use my swimming pool anytime you want. <laughs> this guy says, you have built your house on the wrong lot. And I looked at that man in the eye, and with all the courage I, can muster, I could muster, I said, I have not put my house on the wrong lot because John Hanks put the foundation in this house and if he did it, it's in the right lot. And the building inspector looked at me and said, well, if John Hanks put the foundation in, it's in the right lot. And he got in and he, his car and he drove away and I said, praise the Lord, hallelujah, I hope I don't see him again. <laughs> but here's the truth. In all that we do to witness for God, let us make sure that we're building on the right foundation. Amen. That the foundation is Jesus Christ himself. In everything we do, let it be in the name of Jesus, for his honor, for his glory, because of his grace. Amen. Would you pray with me? And Heavenly Father, we bring you praise and adoration today because we know of how much you love us and that you have provided us with wisdom and power. And Lord, I pray for the young people here and for the not so young people here. Lord, I rejoice to see the commitment and the shining faces the evil one will try to distract and discourage. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would enable all of us to keep our eyes on the glorious goal of seeing men and women with their faces lighted up and shining, anticipating the return of Jesus. Oh Lord, we give ourselves to you right now again. We ask that you would empower us only through the authority of your Holy Spirit. And we will give to you the praise, the honor, and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.